Hi, I'm Derek Pitts, and this is The Curious Cosmos. I'm really excited for today's episode because I'm going to give you a peek into my world. You know, I've spent my career in planetariums. You know those big domes where you can observe and learn about the night sky? Well, after all these years, it still feels magical. But there's a lot of steps needed to create that magic, and the ways we achieve that have changed so much over the years. So today, I'm going to take you behind the scenes of the planetarium world, along with two friends and longtime colleagues, Steve Russo. How long have you been at Fells? So now, Steve, this is, I think, my 46th year at Franklin oh. Institute. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so it? you and I have been doing this for almost 100 years together. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam Storch. What a great thing to see you. <laughs> Hiya. How are you, my friend? Uh, much better now that I see you. Steve is someone who eats, sleeps, and breathes planetariums. His career is long and varied. I started back in 1973. I interned at the Vanderbilt in Long Island. From there, I ended up in Florida, and then up to Northeast Bronx, State, New York, in the years. southern Then it was down to Long Island for a few And then years. up to Schenectady, Moved here to Eastern Kentucky years. back in 2011 to take over the East Kentucky Science Center and Planetarium. And I retired two years ago. So I've spent uh, time in different planetariums, small ones, large ones, school ones, public ones, science center planetariums. I worked with uh, Sam Storch for four years, uh, helping him to set up the Hubble Planetarium in Murrow High School. That's right. Both of my guests today have also worked together. Sam and Steve are both from New York City, and all of our careers have crisscrossed many times while working in such a niche field. Sam also has a long and varied career, but the Hubble Planetarium Steve mentioned is the major project of Sam's work, where he built and headed up a planetarium inside of a high school. A school was built in a neighborhood that didn't want it, and the original capacity of that school was intended to be 7,000 students, and the neighborhood was terrified. Wow. And so they tried to fill the building with all kinds of spaces that would reduce the classroom space for programming purposes, uh, I made the suggestion, well, let's build a planetarium, which in New York City, uh, nobody ever thought of that. They finally got it done. Uh, I lucked out and I fell into a very nice niche that needed to be filled. None of the people with the PhDs wanted to do 100 level courses. And I was always, uh, I'll do it. I'll happily do it. First of all, as long as the paychecks didn't bounce, I was happy. Yeah. <laughs> but more important than that, I was doing something that was close to my heart. It was my subject. It was astronomy. Well, you must have felt like you'd hit the jackpot. I did. So for our audiences, let's just put a little bit of description on this here. We can rank planetariums in a couple of ways, but one way is, is by the size of the dome. So right. there's a class of planetariums across the U.S. that are the like the mega-sized planetariums that have domes of 60 feet and larger than that. And there aren't so many of those, and they tend to be found in big cities, in cultural institutions like the American Museum of Natural History or Griffith Planetarium in Los Angeles or Fells Planetarium at Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. And then there are a flock of smaller ones, just slightly smaller, that you might find at colleges and universities. And even smaller than that, you'll find scattered across the United States in surprisingly large numbers, what we think of as school planetariums that have dome sizes that are 
I'm going to start at 24 foot in diameter and then go down in size from there to maybe, what, 12 foot in diameter? Uh, the, the smallest one I ever worked at was at Nassau Community College. I was a professor there, and I believe our dome there was 18 foot in diameter. Okay. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you wanted to make it dark, you had to have somebody walk over by the door and turn off the switch on the wall. <laughs> okay. It was, it was interesting how we faked all of that. I would tell a story about the magic. We're all looking at the stars now. And I had a way of making it somewhat urban sky in there. I brought in a lamp and I sat on the floor with a shade over it. And it just bounced enough light so that we said, this is, oh, yeah. this is close enough. Do you all agree? Is this what we see outside and when you go out in Garden City at night? Oh, yeah, it does look pretty much how many stars you could see. Okay, fine. Now, I had this whole thing worked out. Uh, we're going to put our hands over our eyes now and just think for a moment. Garden City, a hundred years ago, I turned the lamp off and now you know, the, all the stars and getting back, getting back involved the bigger story had to be far more convincing that would involve some kind of, and here we are now at 11 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. And here we are looking at the heavens Put your hands over your eyes. What are the rest of the people on this campus seeing? And then I had drifted over, turned on the room light, and they understood that there was a conceptual separation between the world that I wanted them to have and keep and the world that they would always be given for free outside. The smaller domes, whether they were 18 or 24 or 30 or even 40, I think are the places that have still retained the mission of bringing the stars to the people. And I've often said, Sam, that these different institutions serve each other in complementary ways. So the big places like Hayden in New York or the Rose Center in New York and Griffith and Fells and places like that can do the really big show, while the smaller planetariums, particularly the school planetariums, can do the really good work of teaching. Now, Steve, why did you get into this? You know, this is a niche field yes. that requires, you know, very specialized skill sets and a really high level of dedication. So why did you get into this? And what is it about planetariums that has drawn us to this? Yeah. I was about five, six years old, and my parents took me out to see Echo and Telstar in the backyard in Brooklyn. Well, these are very early satellites, way back in the early 1960s. And I remember my mom saying, you know, one day there's going to be people up there. And I thought that was really interesting. So when I was six years old, they took me to the Hayden Planetarium in, in Manhattan. It was only a car ride away. Right. This is the, the Hayden Planetarium of that day is now the Rose Center at the American Museum of Natural History in New York right. City. But I remember walking into the dome as a kid. And back then, of course, you know, you had those humongous star machines, you know, the, the old Zeiss projectors like you had at the Fells oh, years ago. Sure, it looks like a gigantic ant. Right, exactly, there's this big bug and you walk in and this thing is sitting in this 60 foot dome and it's striking. It really is striking. And you walk up to the console, imagine the instrument panel of an aircraft or a 1950s car. Hundreds of these old variacs, you know, the old rheostat dials, nothing like computer screens like we have today. And that was fascinating. 
Many of those controls back then were behind a beautiful curved lucite that caught lighting and scattered blue or some other color. The instruments were lit up in red and the printing was engraved in or somehow applied on. So it was readable by a young child approaching the console from the other side. And I remember at age five, when I was finally old enough to be taken to the Hayden Planetarium the first time, I walked up there and I was just, you know, my jaw dropped. Daylight, sunrise glow, diurnal, annual latitude, precession, sun, moon, stars, meridian, and, and all the way across, every single thing was labeled. I could read it. And this man's hands could reach it and play the way I would see a musician or an organist playing a pipe organ. Mm. And that was my reaction. It was just like, wow, I had the privilege of being there in that place. And I remember coming out of the program and my mom and dad saying to me, what did you think of that? And my exact words were, this is what I have to do when I grow up. It's very, very intensive for the presenter. It wasn't only the deep voice. It wasn't only the smell of the ozone and the machine oil in the room <laughs> from the equipment, but it was the ability to make those people, whether, I mean, I had five or 600 in the Hayden Planetarium Dome. I could have 30 in a, a school planetarium and uh, there was a college planetarium where I never had more than 20 and it was the most stripped down setup I ever worked in. And every time I took them, if I, if I did a good job, these students at the end applauded because they had been somewhere personally with me that they couldn't have been by just going in the room with someone else. It would have been some other story. Now you've hit on something that I think is crucially important about this and, you know, across the industry, actually, and across time. In any sort of movie theater or other automated theater, there might be a person that introduces the program, but there isn't a person that stays with the audience through the whole program. And I think one of the unique things about planetariums over time has been that person that live sky guide that takes you on a journey that begins when people come in and they're you know finding their seats it sort of carries them through their whole time in the theater that to me is the most important part of a planetarium is having a person there that could explain things the general public cannot call up nasa to ask about what's happening in spaceflight I've always viewed the people in the planetarium field as the middleman between NASA and the public, uh, especially years ago when most of us that went into the field really had to have degrees in astronomy or some related sciences. But having that person behind the console to explain things, even in the place where I just retired from, we have full dome there. When we say full dome, what we mean is the entire dome view now can be one image. Before Full Dome, we had stars on the ceiling, and then we might have an image of some other celestial object, and they were placed often in little windows or view windows. And that was the result of the projectors that were being used. The projectors were not integrated into a Full Dome 
image. But now, because of digital technology and electronic synthesis, we can now blend images all the way across the dome so it looks like one single image, full dome. But we always, always do a minimum of 15 minutes of live sky and spend time with the public afterwards. Even when we do the laser shows, I always did 15 minutes of live night sky. That seems to be the part that the public really likes. And I'll give you a typical example. So where I just retired from. The only show that we would not do a live sky part was during the Christmas season when we would run our Christmas show, only because that show was a little bit too long. And also they did do the night sky during that show. And that's the only time the public would complain about the content was the person was not doing live for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and this has become unfortunate in, in the planetarium field because a lot of places don't do live anymore. The public still wants a person. Of, I won't even do self-checkout in the grocery store. I want a person there. <laughs> when you're in a planetarium and the person behind the console takes the time to do a, a small lecture or to answer questions. The public feels personally connected to that facility, to that planetarium. It was all about celebrating the ability to take people with you, not only in a unique environment, but frankly, the environment in a planetarium theater in the 1950s and then in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the beginning of the 2000s when I was working there, is not the planetarium theater that people usually experience today. The room is much more brilliantly lit with vivid colors. And back in the day, the room was lit in a very soft, subtle manner, if nothing else, because you wanted the audience to be able to dark it out so that they could see stars later. And I mentioned, you know, things like the odor of machine oil or ozone. But now it's different. You walk in and the aura of the room is not reverence, awe, and quiet. It's more of an entertainment venue. And frankly, many of the educational planetariums probably retain more of the old planetarium way than the current ones. Because in the 19th century, uh, the beginning of the 20th, the Gilded Age gave wealthy people the opportunity to donate money to science as a way of preserving their names on things. But it took until, what, 1921 or 1923 when Walter Bowersfeld invented the projection planetarium. And now so Max Adler says, I'm going to put my name on one of those. We're going to put it in Chicago. And then uh, they convinced Charles Hayden, well, you can put your name on two of them, one in New York and one in Boston, mm -hmm. and so on and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Uh, Samuel Fells. Same thing. All that laundry soap made a beautiful planetarium. <laughs> so what happened was it was the right time for putting money into science and getting credit for it. And at the same time, Sam, is the great age of astronomy in America, where we're beginning to learn so much more about the universe that had ever been known before, because people like George Ellery Hale are financing the construction of large observatories. And now we can observe much deeper into the universe and figure out new things, while at the same time the planetarium projection system is invented and brought into use. 
And so we have this new astronomy science. We have a way to present information about this new stuff in these brand new visual entertainment centers of planetariums that are funded by these you know, great industrialists who want to put their names on things. So we have all this sort of slamming together at the same time that puts the planetarium on the map as the place to go for visual entertainment, for education purposes, and learning about the universe. And it was better than that, because when were all the big things built? They were all built about the same period of time. An aquarium, botanical gardens, a zoo, a planetarium. The planetarium was the only invention anybody has ever made that could reproduce the experience of being out under nature's sky. And I've gotten people really angry, younguns, <laughs> younger than us younguns. I've gotten people really angry by saying, you know, now you're showing a video projection of a computer screen in a sense. Why don't you just, you know, replace the aquarium with the pumps and the gallons of water and the real fish and it costs like, just replace it with one of those screensavers with the fish swimming back and forth. There's your aquarium. <laughs> well, you can't do that. It's, it's not realistic. Well, Mm. This is the reason that I became known as, oh, that crank, he still wants, you know, <laughs> optical mechanical planetariums. I want the audience, right, or the, the victims of my storytelling, I want my audience to realize that they are in a place that is very different from any other kind of place that they can be in. The majority of human beings that I have met have no way in the world of ever seeing a naturally dark sky. And now I have not just the responsibility to give them the best sky that I can, but also to show not only this is the sky, this is how it changes. This is how it moves. Put yourself inside of it in, in your mind. It was ours to weave a story and carry them along with us. Now, we do our best, but that story is already there, it's digested, it's presented, and heaven help you, pun intended, if you change it. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point, that there have been these really tremendous changes and transitions in planetarium technology. I sort of think of it as the brute force optical mechanical projector, you know, of days before, you know, as you said, you smell the ozone and the machine oil of this giant machine working around in the dark. And nowadays, you know, it's about throwing digital photons across the room. It's much more clinical in a sense. Even now, when I go to another planetarium someplace. It's it's magical because you, you're you're inside, but it it becomes outside. Even as a little kid, I was like, how do how do you make outside become inside? In this one room, whether it's a 30-foot room or a 70-foot room, you can create the universe. You can create the day sky, the night sky. You can create it for any point in time, any place on the Earth, any place outside the Earth. You know, there's not too many places that, that you, you can control the universe. I remember going into the original Buell Planetarium when it was still up. I brought my family there, and the young lady who was still running it at the time, she let my kid push the button that would lift the machine out of the pit. Wow. I mean, I, I have hairs on my arm standing up right now thinking about that 
And I had read stories that years ago, long before I ever got to Pittsburgh, that there was actually a, a playable pipe organ in that room. How, how much better can it get? The machine rises silently on a one-of-a-kind elevator. It looks like the huge ant and a pipe organ is playing. Man, that's where I want to go to die. <laughs> <laughs> I think, for example, of, you know, that one golden moment that we all try to reach for as planetarium presenters at the very beginning where we do a sunset and then the sky comes out and you know we can feel it in the audience when they sense that transition and we you know firmly settle into a dark sky i had student assistants who would sometimes say to me oh mr storch do you realize that you're describing the sunset and your eyes are closed and it's all you've got the timing perfect mm. it wasn't just the repetition I guess it was my immersion in it. And I can't think of many other kinds of performance where that happens. But I know a lot of people, former students of mine that ended up working for NASA, working for the National Weather Service uh, because of their experiences. I'm, I'm, about four years ago, I'm, I'm standing in the, um, in the exhibit hall here at my place in, in eastern Kentucky, and this guy is talking about stuff to his wife about it. And I said, you must know a lot about astronomy and space. He says, well, I'm a physicist in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And I said, how did you get into that? He says, I grew up in this little community in upstate New York, and we had this planetarium that was in the middle of the cornfields. And this guy would get up there and talk about stuff, and, and it just intrigued me. And I would listen to him on the radio every morning. And, and I said, really? I said, did the guy sign off by saying, this is Steve Russo reminding you to look to the skies? And he says, oh, my God, you're the reason I became a physicist because of the planetarium experience. So it does affect people because it's such a unique type of room that it sparks people's interest in things. You said radio. Did you do radio astronomy programs in the past? Well, <laughs> when I moved to my job upstate New York back in 1984, I get up there and the first day of work, they tell me, oh, by the way, the planetarium director is also supposed to do morning weather reports. <laughs> okay, I, I, I took a year of meteorology in, in college, so I, mm -hmm. I, I knew the basics of it, but like, gee, thanks for telling. <laughs> so, so it ended up, I start hanging out with the guys from the National Weather Service, and then actually I got my master's degree was in astronomy and meteorology and climate studies. So I ended up spending uh, the 15 years I was upstate New York doing a morning weather program live weather, which also morphed into weather slash astronomy. Of course. So I was doing that kind of stuff. Then the local cable company put gave me my own TV program for about eight years called The Sky Reporter. And you know, you're a planetarium director. You're always going to end up radio, TV, newspapers, things like that. I'm sure that all of us have also had some really interesting experiences in planetariums. And, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the era of late-night laser shows. <laughs> you know, after a show, we might occasionally find, you know, a six-pack of beer left over or, you know, who knows what else. Oh, yeah. 
One of the things that we've done at Fells Planetarium is on summer evenings when the planetarium was not engaged doing astronomy programming, we might use the theater for some other kind of program, like there might be a corporate party or something like that. And I remember coming into the theater one morning after one of these events, and the room was all cleaned up and it looks great and everything. But up in the cove where the projectors were, I found a woman's high-heeled shoe. And I could not for the life of me figure out what kind of party went on here last night where someone was missing a shoe. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the first things that came to my mind, and I wasn't going to mention it, but you started with the shoe, was uh, we were down the Bishop and we were doing one of those late night shows. Uh, when the show was over, we found... Uh, couple of sets of undergarments <laughs> laser shows were and remember those days too when you did laser shows they were mostly manually run now the shows come on a hard drive you just kind of insert them in there but when jan and i started doing lasers 1980 you were controlling the patterns while the music was playing it was a different thing too in that sense that was a really interesting blend of the art and the science or the art yes. and the technology that you spoke yes. of because you know you had this device that you actually had to manipulate the dials of to get the laser to do things right yeah but you had to decide what forms and structure and shape you wanted it to be to go with the music so you yes. had kind of an artistic expression in this yeah we we would rehearse for three or four days uh almost like a rock band would rehearse before going on stage and and we'd write down where you'd have to place the dials to get the shape that looked like a potato chip or the shape that looked like whatever and um it was interesting but oh yeah yeah beer cans alcohol uh I illegal substances, uh, yeah, the old... Uh... <laughs> Some wacky tobacco. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, too, because even here in eastern Kentucky, I could see people out in the parking lot drinking some moonshine before they'd come in, tailgating before the shows. It was like, you know, you're not doing it in my dome, but, uh, well, I can't control out in the parking lot kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you recall any special guests that you had in a planetarium show or any kind of exclusive students that might have dropped in at some point? A couple of unusual things one time. Uh, apparently, Brooklyn, New York had partnered with Cairo, Egypt, and the governor general of Cairo was on the first floor. Uh, do you think you could demonstrate something in the planetarium for him? Fortunately, the gods had arranged that, that I had had a school show cancellation, so the dome was empty. And this is before the internet, okay? Mm -hmm. And my mind was always, you know, focused on astronomy. That was the only arena of human life other than 1950s rock and roll that excited <laughs> me. So I said, you, I grabbed the kid, run down to the library and come back very fast. I need to know the latitude of Cairo as fast as you could find it. Uh, he ran downstairs. He came back just in time. I had a second constellation outline projector for Orion. Mm -hmm. And so I had the one that was part of the existing bunch of projectors set up for 9 p.m. on you know some February night in New York. And I quickly changed to the latitude of Cairo and added the one for Orion from the latitude of Cairo that shut that off and went back to New York. When the fellow came, I did the usual seven minute run them through, show them what the theater can do. And as part of that, I sermonized. And after all, we all share the same stars. Look, here we are 
and here is Orion from Cairo, your home, and, what, and so on. And then this impressed him enormously. And in fact, at the end of that day, I was heading out and the principal of the school stopped me. He said, how long you must have worked to prepare for that? <laughs> because they were so impressed. I said, yeah, about five minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> you see, because that's the thing. You're, you're a master of the universe yourself. So if somebody said to you, quick, you need to do this, you know exactly what to do. It's just, it's part of you. It's instinctive. If you had to sit there and type 2,000 lines of code to do it, it would take a little longer, but you'd still know what to do. This is your trade. This is your profession. This is what's close to your heart. And so without thinking about it or sitting and planning or writing notes, I knew what to do. And let's see if we can recall some of the names of the special effects projectors that were made. Oh, he had everything from a rotating Jupiter, sunrise, sunset, clouds, uh, rotating galaxies. Uh, we had a picture of a galaxy in a motor that would, that would turn a slide so the galaxy rotated. Yeah, most planetariums, what, 20 or 30 slide projectors and probably two dozen special effects projectors. There was a special effects projector that was called a, uh, the Pepsi effect. <laughs> Remember that? Yes, the Pepsi bottle. You put a light through that. It made the best aurora there ever was in the sky. Right, right. You put a yes. colored gel on it, right? You call right. it the Pepsi effect. And now I'm going to put you on the spot because there was another one where you had a rotating plastic wheel in front of a lamp. Well, we used to put duco cement on them and you had clouds or they made nebulas depending on colored filters on them. It was, it was, it was neat. I remembered we called those shit wheels. Yeah, that's right. Because you could put any kind of shit on them at all and project it in the room. We just called them shit wheels. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> there were all sorts of things. And, and, and you just had a light source, usually sometimes an automotive bulb or whatever. Oh, uh, you yeah, know. sure. All kinds of weird devices that were built by your special effects technician. That's right. Yeah, and, and it, it was cool. If you needed something for a show, you built that specific effect for the show. It was, it was yeah, cool. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Can you recall any of those superb planetarium lecturers we learned from and what it was that made them so effective as guides through the universe? There was a doorman at the Hayden, mm -hmm. Bob Martin. Okay. And after I started taking my courses all through the next years, even through college, he would always let me in for free. And it was great back then because Mark Chartrand would give me the run of the place. Alan Seltzer was there. Uh, I, God, I can't think of all the different names. Uh, uh, Fred Hess, one of the greatest lecturers. And these were all people that, that knew that I was serious about going into the field. So they, they gave me free run. They let me sit behind, you know, a kid 15 years old sitting behind the console of that big Zeiss. is like you're controlling the universe. It's like a dream come true for a kid who's interested in this. So these people nurtured me through the early stages of the field. I recall a lot of the planetarium people from the early days. What I remember most is that they all shared a common set of characteristics. They knew their material and they were so wrapped up in adoration of the ability to have literally a panel of controls. I'll turn on the sun, I'll move the planets, I'll turn the stars on. And you grabbed your audience 
and you carried them with you on your story and you just made sure that your story became their story. You know, when I was old enough to 14 and 15 years old to take courses at the Hayden Planetarium. That's where I ran into Tom Carey the first time. He was my first astronomy instructor. Ah. And you had Roy Gallant. He was one of my instructors. Right. And these are all names that if anybody who has you know been interested in astronomical observing over the last X number of years might recognize some of these names. Right. Because like you say, Roy Gallant was you know an, an author who wrote how many books about space? I've got them all in my basement autographed. You know? And people like like Helmut Wimmer, who was the classic space artist, oh, man. you know, that almost everybody would recognize Helmut Wimmer's work, even though they don't know the name. Yeah, it was, it was Hank Krull and uh, Mark Chartrand. Mark Chartrand, sure. There was one person I wanted to talk a little bit about, but that's George Lovi. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, goodness, George. I hope you'll tell us a little bit more about George, but I remember George Lovi as being a very special resource in the planetarium field because he knew star positions with such unbelievable accuracy that we would ask George to come to our theaters and tell us if the stars being projected by the star projectors were in their accurate positions. And he oh, yeah. could tell you within, you know, half a degree or arc minutes or arc seconds whether your projector star positions were accurate or not. And this is like one of the odd personalities or, you know, different personalities in the planetarium field. Uh, you were right with odd. <laughs> that was it to start with <laughs> odd, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I knew George quite well, of course, being part of the New York uh, contingent of planetarium people. George was, for many years, was the one who did the centerfold star chart for Sky and Telescope magazine. Mm-hmm. George was interesting. He never went to college, but yet knew the sky better than anybody. And it was in his head, uh, like you say, star positions. I remember we used to go observing with him. Me, Sam Storch, and that whole New York contingent would go observing on Jones Beach with our telescopes. And we did not have to bring any star maps or charts because we could just say, okay, we're looking for some specific star or some nebula or galaxy that was not visible to the naked eye. And George would know off the top of his head its position, right ascension and declination, and you'd aim the telescope there, and it was in the eyepiece. The, the, the guy was incredible with stuff like that. Like you say, he literally would know if a star was off a degree or something in a planetarium. And that presented some interesting things because George would walk around with this tiny little set of drills in his pocket, like some of the stuff that the model railroaders use, and with this little hand crank drill and a pocket full of toothpicks. And if he was in your planetarium and noticed the star was out of position, you had to watch out because after the show, he would get up and just walk up to the star machine, plug that hole with a toothpick and drill the new hole. <laughs> it was, oh, <laughs> he, he was crazy with that. And star projectors at that time were very expensive. Yeah, and, and, you know, there were some that had lenses in them, and, you know, like the A3Ps also had holes in them. Right. But George was great. He had a memory also for what was in Sky and Telescope magazine. If, if you were just sitting having a conversation with George and said, you know, George, there was an article like many years ago about some guy who built an observatory in his backyard, and George would go, 
Oh yeah, and he'd give you the date and the volume of the magazine, sometimes the page. Amazing. Even if it was 30 years before. He didn't like being out in front of the public lecturing, but he was in the background when you wrote a show, making sure everything was correct, making sure the positions of everything, like you say, within a degree. But he was an odd person. When, when he passed away, Sam and I went to, to clean out his apartment in Manhattan, and George never threw anything out. I don't know how many astronomy books, uh, cassette tapes of every astronomy lecture that was on you know, radio or TV. It was probably a library of astronomical stuff. Every book, every chart, every map with notes all over him. But he was an interesting character to hang out with. And maybe you remember George Hamilton, of course. I know that guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. George Hamilton was the former director of the Fells Planetarium at Franklin Institute, uh, one director away. I actually worked directly for George. Right, I remember, uh, Which yeah. was a fantastic experience because he was such a powerful force in the planetarium industry. Oh, so yes. I feel really fortunate, along with, you know, there are a number of other people like that. But George had a really interesting way of writing programs, and George was the driving force in writing planetarium shows at Fells oh, Planetarium. Yeah. And uh, what George would do is George would figure out what the topic of the show was going to be. He'd do a bunch of research about it. And then what he would do is he would go home one day and he would write the show all in that one evening. And wow. he would finish it all off. And I remember he would come in in the morning and he would throw the script on the assistant director's desk and say, here's the show, get it done. <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest of us, you know, the rest of the team were all responsible for uh, putting together all the visuals and the special effects and all that kind of stuff, which was a monumental task in and of oh, itself, yeah. as you know. And I remember at one time we were at a conference when he was the, the Margaret Noble address speaker. And I remember him standing up there and talking about the old days of the planetarium field, like you and I are talking about. And I remember exactly what he said. Standing behind that console, you felt like you were the Wizard of Oz, sharing your knowledge of space with the world. And, and I had that posted above my desk in my office here until I retired, because that, to me, explained what a planetarium was. You, you in a sense, were controlling the universe. Whatever people wanted to see, you could show them. You know, past, present, it didn't make any difference. And to be able to take this one room and create things like that to educate school kids, the public, it, it still is intriguing to me all these years later. My world is a world where I went to that special place every day and I was glad I did. Yeah, I could bring the universe to people, not only conceptually, but as close to physically as one can. And now... They sit, they go in, and, you know, 19 minutes later, go out the front doors. <laughs> Not everybody has been in a planetarium, and the aura of the room is special. And that's where we began with this a few minutes ago. It's our responsibility to use this unique environment, squeeze the most we can out of it, because the product will be the memories that our audiences have when they go outside to take out the garbage pail and they look up and they say, hey, no, I can see some of that from my house. That's what's important. 
You know, ever since my parents took me outside, it's just something that hit me that this is what I was put on this planet to do, it was to educate people in astronomy. I still volunteer at the place I just retired from, so I'm still doing it. <laughs> you know the way that works. Yeah, there, of right? course, of course, of course. It's one of those things that, you know, you and I know when you go into this business, you don't go into it for the money. You go into it because there's something inside of you. You love this business. And, you know, someone once said to me, a truly happy person is a person that does for a living what they would probably do for nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that's you. That's I. That's Sam Storch. It's, it's all those people we grew up with that. Yeah, we, we would have done this for nothing. What we were getting paid was almost nothing anyway, but it was inside of us. And, and we'll keep doing it till we go into the grave, whether we're retired or not. doesn't matter. I don't think there's any hope for us doing anything else because this is the thing that we love to do. Yeah, and, and most people I know in the planetarium feel that retired are still volunteering in places. It never leaves your system. just doesn't. That's right. When are you going to retire, buddy? Who's retiring? <laughs> if they're paying, I'm staying. So there you go. That's the way to look at it. <laughs> I really do appreciate you being here today. It's so great to reconnect with you. You have made my day. It was such an exciting thing to know that you thought of me. Because you know what? You have been one of my inspirations in this industry. You know, when I came into the industry, there were people like you who were kind enough to guide me to get me to where I am. And I can't say enough about how much I appreciate that if it wasn't for the inspiration and what I learned from people like you, Sam, uh, you know, I'd be doing something else. And I, and every time I do a live planetarium show, I am channeling people like you and people like George Reed and people like, you know, George Lovi and all those other people that we know. And so thank you very much for the honor and the privilege of being a guest here. Thanks. That's exactly what I was going to say to you. This has been beyond anything I could describe. You, you really made my day. What an honor. Steve, this has been really wonderful. I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this, and I'm glad you've been in the business for such a long time. You've been an inspiration to me, and I'm glad we've had a chance to work together in the past, and I'm so glad we had a chance to do this today. So I want to say thank you very much, and, and hopefully we will see each other sometime in the not-too-distant future. Derek, again, thank you. I, like I say, honored to do this with you. I, I, I've looked up to you for so long. I mean, you and I started in this business probably together at some point, That's but right. uh, sure always did. looked up to you. So when I was asked to do this, I said, yeah, for Derek, there's no way I'm, I'm, I'm not going to turn this down. <laughs> Millions have had their first experience learning about the night sky in a planetarium. No matter how sophisticated the medium gets, the unifying factor is the presenter who personally and confidently guides us out into the deepest parts of the universe and then safely brings us back to our backyard skies. When was the last time you visited a planetarium? Maybe it's time to go again. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Matafusco, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and I'm Derek Pitts, chief astronomer and director of the Fels Planetarium at the Franklin Institute, and your host for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening.